Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome once again. Uh, there is a handout that consists of uh, maybe one or two separate handouts. One is the usual translation that will be our point of reference for today. Um, the ESV has been read already, um, and that's the version that's been authorized by our church. The translation that I'm using for our sermon has not been authorized by our church, uh, and that's why we read the ESV, but it contains many of the, uh, the, the interpretation uh, notes accompanying it. So please use this as your point of reference. And today the outline for the sermon is on page four. And uh, Stephen, I've sent that to you just all too recently in case it's possible to post that on, um, on Zoom. That's something I um, have forgotten to do in recent weeks and apologize for. So, and I shall try uh, as best I can to follow our outline. I think today's passage picks up where we left off last week with the disciples on the road to Caesarea Philippi, where the conversation comes up as to the identity of Jesus. So it's not surprising that our title today contains the words Jesus's identity. And then surprisingly, it includes the identity of Simon Peter. So it's the identity and mission of Jesus and Peter. And then the bombshell means by which that mission is to be accomplished. The identity of Jesus, the identity of Peter, the mission of Jesus and Peter, the means by which the mission is going to be accomplished. And then in verses 24 following, there's an invitation that pertains directly to us. We are invited to follow on the path of Jesus. I just want to remind ourselves of where we are in the context of Matthew. We are coming up on what is arguably the climax of Matthew's gospel. It certainly is in the case of Mark's gospel, where Simon Peter answers Jesus's question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? A rather obscure term. And Matthew hits the nail right on the head. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that constitutes a turning point in Mark's gospel as well as in Matthew's gospel. And we'll see that turning point happen right at the beginning of verse 21, where we get a bombshell revelation of what the ministry of the Messiah consists of. And it's something that no one, so far as we know, no Jew living at the time other than Jesus had understood or seen coming. Although now in retrospect, we see that it was foreseen in the Psalms. Jesus, of course, is a brilliant interpreter of the Bible. He is a rabbi above all rabbis, and so it's not surprising that his understanding of the Bible stands head and shoulders over those of his rivals, and that people even to this day are beginning to catch up with many of the insights that he had into the scriptures. So that's a little bit about the context of Matthew. There's a segment that elaborates the context of, um, of Matthew um, for you on page five background and context, its place in the gospel, soon coming related themes, and on the theme of discipleship. And I leave those for you to read for yourself later in the week if you wish. But I couldn't help but share, um, as I was doing my Bible study this week, something that um, <clears throat> has been a great source of joy to me, and one that I want to share with you. And it's a thing called inductive Bible study. 
Um, and this has become kind of a buzzword in Bible study circles. Those of you who have been on one of these um, um, intensive intervarsity excursions where you study Mark's gospel know about this. Uh, my niece, Alison Taylor, when she was working with InterVarsity in Toronto, always enjoyed leading those with people. And it involves um, the discipline of not assuming that you know what the text is saying and trying to keep fresh eyes for what is there that you are presently not seeing. And in studying the passage this week, I came across two things that um, I would not have noticed if uh, somebody hadn't taught me um, inductive Bible study method. And inductive Bible study method just gets, involves getting a pencil out and asking a stock list of questions. Are there any comparisons? Are there any contrasts? Are there any surprises? Is there progression? Is there something here that surprises me? Is there something not here that should be? So it would seem. And your eyes begin to open and you begin to see the text in a whole new and rich way. And it really is a powerfully enriching way to, uh, to enliven one's personal Bible study. So I have made um, a, a several copies of a handout that I used to give out when I was a, a seminary prof on how to do inductive Bible study. And it's a little guide, and I want to encourage you to, um, to take one. Maybe um, we can just put three or four copies at the center of every table. You have to promise not to let your, 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 get distracted by it. It's for later, um, but uh, it's, a, it's a goodie coming your way. One of the things that struck me as I was looking at the passage is the different names for Simon Peter. You wouldn't think it's a big deal, but actually it turned out to be uh, crucial for opening up this passage. Um, in um, verse 16, Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, um, the son of the living God. And then answering in, verses seven, in verse 17, Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not this reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then it seems in verse 18 that Jesus now gives Simon kind of a new name. Simon Peter was the one who hit the nail on the head by identifying Jesus. You are the Christ. Other people are saying you're A, B, C, and D. That's who they call you, but I'm going to call you Christ. And Jesus responds and says, you've hit the nail on the head, Simon. Moreover, I say to you, you are rocky. That's what Peter means. You are rocky. And upon this very rock, I'm following my translation at verse 18 on page one, on this very rock, I shall build my church. Well, it was that just a simple observation that we have different names being used for Simon that sort of sent out a clue that maybe we should pay more attention to the names for Simon Peter here. And sure enough, commentators have noticed that Simon Bar-Jonah is unique. And so Jesus, in his response, when he's blessing Simon for his proper identification, is kind of confirming him. And he's saying, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. And he's saying, you have followed the signs that I gave, the only ones that I would give, the sign of Jonah, and you properly identified me as the Christ. But the real clincher comes in understanding that it's very possible that here Jesus named Peter, Peter, for the first time. Now you say, well, wait a minute, in verse uh, 16, Simon Peter said, well, it so turns out that Matthew is comfortable calling Simon Peter, Simon Peter, 
but only Matthew calls Simon Peter, Simon Peter. No one other than the narrator has called Peter, Peter to this point. So it's anachronistic. It's like calling um, King Charles, King Charles a few weeks before the queen has died. It's, it's anachronistic. And so the name change is significant, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more. But let's begin with the identity of Jesus Christ. We looked at it last week, and Simon Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The Messiah, of course, was the promised figure. He was, going to, he was understood to be a king who was going to come and uh, destroy the Romans, set up an earthly kingdom, um, rescue the Jewish people from the plight uh, the situation of Jews in the first century um, in relation to Rome was in some ways the way that uh, some Palestinians um, interpret their experience under Israel today. Uh, they, were, um, they were underdogs. They, they, they felt as though uh, the, the land that they wanted wasn't fully theirs and so on. And so uh, Peter describes Jesus as the Christ, and he's commended for it. But of course, we're soon going to learn that the mission of Jesus involves a means of fulfilling his messiahship that is a bombshell. That shall come in a minute. So the identity of Jesus we've already looked at last week. Now comes the identity of Peter. Moreover, says Jesus in verse 18, to you, singular, I say, you are rocky. Now, I don't know whether that means that Rocky looks like the guy in the Rocky movies. Probably not. I don't think Simon Peter was a muscle builder. But the point is, is that Simon Peter was Rocky because by naming Jesus the Christ and identifying him as the son of the living God, Simon Peter had put his hand on the cornerstone of the church. And in response, Jesus says, I'm going to call you Rocky. And upon this very rock, that is, Peter... It's not just Peter's affirmation, it includes it, but folks, we Protestants dare not avoid the implications of this. Jesus is calling Peter the rock, and Peter is the rock upon which the church will be built. More on that later. It doesn't mean that, uh, uh, don't run out and become a Catholic until you, come to the end of the, until you come to the end of the sermon, at least. So we have the identity of Jesus, then we have the identity of Peter. Now, Peter is a rock, and his place is foundational. Let me just go back to the naming of Peter. It's, it's, it's very possible that Jesus is giving Peter a new name in the same way that God gave Abraham a new name and in the same way that God gave Jacob a new name, Israel. And in each of these cases, it happened when the human figure was the progenitor of a new group of people. Abraham goes back and is kind of the, the forefather of the Jewish people. And Jacob fulfills that role more specifically. And here it's very possible that Jesus is saying to Simon Peter, you are the fountainhead of a newly constituted people that is going to include Gentiles. And so Jesus is giving Simon Peter here a great deal of recognition and a great deal of authority. This is evident when we come now to point number three that involves the mission of Jesus with the help of Peter. Jesus says, and here I am in verse 18b, the mission of Jesus in partnership with Peter, I shall build my church. Okay, this is not Peter's church. Jesus says, upon this very rock, Simon Peter, the disciple, I shall build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. 
I shall give to you the keys of the kingdom of the heavens, and whatever you bind upon the earth will have been bound in the heavens, and whatever you loose on the earth will have been loosed in the heavens. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell, uh, that they tell no one that he is the Christ. Christ remains a buzzword for what people are expecting Jesus to do wrongly. Well, let's go back and look at the terms. I've already pointed out that Jesus doesn't declare this to be Simon Peter's church. This is Jesus's church. It's Jesus's mission. And any role that Simon Peter plays in it is only by virtue of the fact that Jesus, that Peter affirmed Jesus for who he rightly was. Now, if we go back to, if we go back to um, look at the, the section on the mission, I want us to notice the word church. When we think of a church, we think of a building. And of course, um, that's kind of appropriate because Jesus has already named Peter something like the foundation stone. So we're to think of the temple being rebuilt. And we are, as we know uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, we are the new temple of God. And Simon Peter, in a way, although Paul challenges this, so we shouldn't use it kind of outrightly, he is in a way the foundation stone. And in a temple, which was the church, the house of God, we can think of church equals uh, people of God equals temple. They're all the same things. The temple was understood to be the center of the cosmos. It was the focal point of the world. And underneath the foundation stone of the temple was thought in Jewish tradition to be the gates of hell. It was the entrance place to the underworld. And when, the, when, the, when, the, when this institution is built, it is, in a sense, functioning as a cork on the lid of Hades. And so, um, in a way, it's kind of helpful, I think, to think of the church as being a cork that's put in the center of the world, and it's a stopper for the gates of hell. And the cork is also the point of access for the kingdom of heaven. If you'd been doing an inductive Bible study, you would have noticed how rare the expression gates of Hades is, and that would have signaled a flag for you. And then you would have noticed that in the very next verse, the opposite of mentioned. Gates of Hades, kingdom of heaven, keys. We're talking about architecture. We're talking about the same institution. So Jesus is saying, upon you, Simon Peter, I shall build my temple, which is the people of God, and, um, and uh, the gates of Hades will not prevail over it. I'm going to make sure of that, says Jesus implicitly. But I shall give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in the heavens, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in the heavens. We live in an old house, uh, a Victorian house, uh, that we kind of bought uh, 20 years ago. Um, more out of sentiment than, than, uh, than, than, than sound reasoning. And we noticed that the basement, um, of course, has, a, has, has one of those drains in it, which looks innocuous enough. But if you don't install a, a, a backup system in the sewer drain, um, bad things can happen to the basement tenant. Um, we, fortunately, we didn't learn that the hard way. We, we, we actually had um, one of those uh, sewer stoppers in the basement. Um, so that if the sewer gets backed up, um, I won't dwell on this for very long, but I'm just going to sort of give you the idea. When the, when the, if the sewer backs up, it comes into the house, right? 
Well, Jesus, in effect, is saying, upon my, I'm going to build my church upon the foundation stone of Peter and the apostles who will come in his wake. But Peter is signaled out here. And, and um, the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. So the manhole might leak. There might be a little residue, but the, but the drain is not going to pop. One of my favorite episodes of the Three Stooges from back in the 60s was when um, the Three Stooges were somehow in, in Saudi Arabia and they discovered oil and Curly was the fat guy. So he was sitting on this um, on this on this uh, oil derrick when the oil derrick struck oil and there was a gusher and the, the oil came up out of the spout and 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 Curly. Uh, is on top of this tower of um, oil spurting about 50 feet in the air. And he's saying, ah, I'm an unsuccessful cork. I'm an unsuccessful cork. Well, Jesus is telling us that he's going to build his church and that he's going to make sure that it is not an unsuccessful cork. The powers of Hades will not prevail against it. Satan is in trouble. He's down there and he's bound. He's on a bit of a loose chain, but Satan's kingdom will never destroy the church. Well, that's good news. The good news continues, in a sense, in that the keys of the kingdom of heaven are given to Simon Peter. <laughs> but think about Simon Peter for a minute. I mean, in a few minutes, he's actually going to blow it. I was talking to a, a friend who preaches in a cowboy church in Western Canada this week, and he said, oh, yeah, Simon Peter. Ready, fire, aim. That's Simon Peter's motto. You know, it's ready, aim, fire is what you usually do. But Simon Peter is ready, fire, aim. So before long, even in this next section, Peter's going to rebuke Jesus and Jesus is going to call him Satan. So how assuring is it that we're told by Jesus that he is going to give the keys of the kingdom of the heavens to Peter? And whatever he binds on the earth will have been bound in the heavens, and whatever he looses on the earth will have been loosed in the heavens. Well, that is, that, is a, that is a bit of a trick and a bit of a challenge, and I think for that I'm going to take you to the notes, where I have um, a comment or two on uh, the role of um, Peter as the head of the church. Actually, it's one of the... It's one of the, um, the um, issues. It's on page, uh, let's read on page, uh, on page um, nine at the bottom. How much power does the church really have to bind and loose on behalf of God? How much power does Peter really have to bind on behalf of the church? And of course, Roman Catholics would be thinking of um, the power that lies within the, the, the office of St. Peter in this regard, but that's, that's a far extrapolation, and for that you can go to the note before after our sermon. So I'm reading at the bottom of page 9. Why is heaven's ratification brought in? Because Jesus wants to encourage his easily despised little church that God stands behind her ministry of the Gospels, key words. What the apostles preach matter. So Peter should know that when he preaches Jesus's gospel, he's not just giving human opinions or offering interesting options. Jesus is building his church, not only through and upon Peter's words, on this rock I will build my church, but Jesus's father stands behind and over Peter's words, accepting those whom Peter accepts, rejecting those whom Peter rejects, 
And these are respectively those who accept or reject Peter's message of Jesus as ultimate. So the point is that these words were given to encourage a church which was going to lose Jesus by having him go to heaven, have the gift of the Spirit which was new and different and in some ways a little elusive, ethereal. But Peter was to know that if he was to proclaim the message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that things would happen, that doors would open. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. We find that in Acts chapter 2, it's Peter who opens the door and explains the message of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 10, it's Peter who opens the door to the Gentiles when he meets Cornelius. And it's Simon Peter and John who opens the door to the kingdom to those who are in between, Samaritans and others. So the whole book of Acts is what uh, Jesus has in mind here, I think. Not, not the institution of the Pope, but Peter's central role as a Jew in opening up the kingdom and in seeing lives changed as people come to hear the message of Jesus. And for that, Peter has a primary place. Now, does that mean that whatever he will abound in heaven will be bound on earth? Turn again to page nine and let's look at the second note quickly. The expressions will have been bound in heaven. Um, I'm in uh, page C, section two. Apologies to those on, uh, on, on Zoom. Uh, we can give you a PDF of the notes if, uh, if that helps. The future passive phrases will have been bound in heaven, will have been loosed in heaven, have two exact future tenses and two reverent substitutes for the divine name. The passive have been and the euphemistic heaven. And these words taken together mean, and here's the point, what you bind on earth, God will recognize to be bound at the last judgment. And what you loose on earth, will God will recognize to be loosed at the last judgment. So it's in the future and it's postponed, it's put forward to the last judgment. And then I've underlined what is also crucial. Since it is a biblical axiom that the last judgment will be impeccably fair, the future tenses remove any understandable anxiety about an arbitrary church. Jesus is not teaching an ecclesiastical earth to heaven push button in chapter 16, verse 19. He is assuring a Christocentric Peter that his ministry on earth will be ratified by God in heaven, though not without lapses from Peter's side. So I think the answer to um, the, uh, the, the question that, or the, the point that many Roman Catholics might make on, based on this passage is that there's, no, there's not a suggestion here that this is transferred to anybody. In fact, it's made clear that this is Jesus's church and that there's a one and only Peter, this very rock, singular. And it's looking forward to the ministry of the apostolic church where Peter takes the lead and shows tremendous courage. So we have the identity of Jesus, the identity of Peter who earns a new name, and who is thus the progenitor of a new group of people, signaling a change. And then we come to the means of the mission. And that comes in verses 21 to 28. Think about what Peter must have been thinking to this point. I hit the nail on the head. I got the keys to the kingdom. Jesus is going to come. He's going to set up a kingdom. I can see myself wearing fancy clothes at his right hand and smashing bad guys on the head and getting pats on the head from God the Father and the holy angels. And then Jesus now begins to drop his bombshell. And it's something that no one saw coming. 
And it's so controversial that some New Testament scholars today will still maintain that this was made up by the church as a way of um, um, rescuing us from the embarrassment of Jesus' crucifixion, which he, uh, they say, Jesus never saw coming. Well, that's absurd. It was from that time on that Jesus began to show his disciples that it was necessary that he depart to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and to be killed, and on the third day be raised. <laughs> well, <clears throat> Peter, with his newly endowed power, is uh, going to step up and just say, excuse me, Jesus, but you got that wrong. In fact, he uses an expression, um, God's mercy forbid. It's, you know, um, uh, the merciful God would never allow that, Simon Peter says. And he says it quite straightforwardly. And of course, the lesson immediately is that there's no infallibility even in Peter, let alone the office of the Pope or anyone else. Then Jesus, having wheeled around, this startles Jesus. And he wheels around and he says to Peter, get behind me, O Satan. You're an obstacle to me. For you, have, you are not mindful of the things of God, but those of humans. Peter said what Jesus hoped would be true. But Jesus knows that it's necessary that he must come and die for the sins of the people that he's about to save. This came as a great shock. And it's going to come with a sobering lesson. But I want us to notice that there's an element of humility that's implied here. Imagine King Charles paying a visit to Toronto and you get a chance to go to City Hall, if you wish, and to see him and um, the Queen Consort. You know, you, you, you might hope you got a chance to sort of look handsome or pretty and wave, maybe even get a pleasant little nod. Uh, you might get a, a, a kick out of looking at the limousine, the Jaguar that they're driving. But the last thing that you would want is for Charles to get out of his car and said, call me Charlie if you want. I hear you got a backed up sewer in your basement and I'd like to help you skewer that out. I mean, you, you, would, you would be appalled. I know you would be appalled <laughs> because I've had the experience of sometimes, um, um, like you, you know, you go out to dinner with somebody and there's an extra $2 to be paid and you, you, you sort of say your friend doesn't have the loony in their pocket and you pay the loony for them. They say, I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. No, really, I'll pay you back. You say, forget it. No, no, I want to pay you back because we want to do things right. We want to retain our honor. And so when we have a Messiah who comes along, who wants to suffer and be killed and to die on our behalf, that makes us very uncomfortable. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. I think probably the, the biggest human obstacle on the path of embracing the gospel is pride. We want it our way. We want to preserve our dignity. And somebody getting dirty to save your soul kind of admits things aren't good. I'm in trouble. This week we had the brick wall of our house on Markham Street repaired. It's kind of a Victorian house, and, and for a long time there was a dryer vent that, that had a bad cap on it, and I, I put a cover over the dryer vent to make the wall look nicer. We got somebody to come and replace the bricks that were looking pretty old because, you know, you want to live in a respectable place. 
Well, the repair people came and they replaced the bricks, which was fine. And then I realized that behind the bricks, the dryer vent, the hose was rotten to the core. I mean, well, it wasn't rotten to the core, but there were, there were holes in the side and I was trying to, to cap the vent with a little bit of mesh to keep the mice out. The mice kept on coming in. When you took the brick wall away, you realize that the whole vent is just riddled with holes and the mice can run free as they want. So you get behind the brick wall, which was already looking pretty ratty, and it's even rattier. We like to have the brick walls on our facade repaired so we can look respectable. And of course, Jesus has said this again and again in the Gospel of Matthew. Inside, there are smelly, stinking bones and organs, and it's bad. Don't even try. So our Savior, the Messiah, the one who should sit on the throne is going to be nailed to a cross. And Simon Peter was wrong to rebuke Jesus. That is the surprise mission. We come now to the invitation. And the invitation is an invitation to follow. What is the invitation? Verses 24 to 28. I missed two illustrations about river rapids in Galileo, but you can ask me about that afterwards. Time is moving on, sorry. Well, the invitation is open. Jesus then says to his disciples in verse 24, if anyone wishes to come behind me, let him deny him or herself and take up his cross and follow me. So it's an open invitation to accompany Jesus on a lifelong journey of self-denial and suffering unto death. My first reaction would be, well, thank you, but no thank you. Self-denial, suffering, death, not exact. It's, it's not my project, Jesus. Good luck, good luck on that. So then Jesus raises the bar and tells us why we might want to accept that invitation. And my friends, the stakes are high. Jesus says, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever wishes to lose her life for my sake will find it. And he goes on as if it's not clear enough that the stakes are high to remind us of the value and the importance of our soul. Here comes a reminder, nothing in life is more important than your eternal self. For what will a man be gained, be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I mean, you could have all the money in the world. If you lose your soul, that's it. The old saying is true. You never see a U-Haul being towed behind a hearse. It's you that goes and you alone that passes on to heaven. And you got one of two places to go. I've been looking at some philosophy classes, uh, taking some philosophy classes informally online, and I noticed that the philosophy professor, after he talks about somebody like Nietzsche or Immanuel Kant or somebody, he always evaluates it by how important the philosopher was. And he says, whatever else you might say about someone like Immanuel Kant or Nietzsche, he says they were playing for very high stakes. They had everything on the table. And that's true of Jesus here. The stakes, I, I mean, imagine how the stakes could possibly be higher. But the offer isn't very attractive from our standpoint, is it? Or is it? It depends on how you look at it. The idea of losing your life 
sounds disastrous, but that is the means by which you find your life. And if you lose your life for Jesus' sake, you discover it. So it's with the loss of self that one discovers one true self, and one's true self is to be found in a relationship that consists of following Jesus Christ down a path that leads, perhaps, to the cross itself. This could cost you your life. What choice do we have? It's an invitation. The stakes, my friends, are incredibly high. And so I think for that reason, Jesus concludes the passage, and with this I'll conclude, he gives us two kind of concluding reminders. In verse 27, he says, the day's going to come when the RSVP to this invitation is in, for the Son of Man is coming in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will repay every person according to their doing. The clock is ticking, and one day there will be a day of accountability. And then in verse 28, I like to understand verse 28, and it's a, it's a problematic passage, uh, um, I, I admit, and there's some notes on it that I won't go into detail, but Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Just follow me for a minute, and I know it's been, it's been a, a, um, a while, but we're, we're coming to the end. The stakes are high. The way to find our life is to lose it. The way to save our life is to give it over to Jesus and we thereby find it. We do that because we want to save our souls. We do that because Jesus is coming again. But then Jesus here is giving a word of encouragement. He's saying there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I think Jesus is ultimately thinking of both the resurrection and the second coming because they were understood to be two parts of the same. So although he's talking about the second coming, his primary point of reference is the resurrection. Um, think of the way in which our bodily resurrection and the coming of Jesus is tied in the future. I think Jesus is giving us here a taste of what it will be like to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It, I was reminded in thinking about this, that it must be a little bit like being a soldier in battle. Say you're in the Ukrainian forces or even some um, a poor uh, fellow or woman who's driven to the front lines of the, the, the Russian trenches. Winter's coming. You've been given this assignment that involves death. You're maybe hoping for the glory of your, your country, but you, you realize that it's a matter of life and death. And how many soldiers have there been who have in their wallet a picture of their girlfriend, or nowadays, maybe their boyfriend? And they look at that picture, and somehow they realize when they look at that picture, you know what? <laughs> when I look at that beautiful face, I realize there's a reason for doing this. And one day, it's going to be worth it. And so next week on Christ the King Sunday, we're going to see the transfiguration where Simon Peter gets a glimpse of the Son of Man coming in the glory of his kingdom and all of the price that Peter and the other apostles paid will be more than worth it. And the same is true for you and me. Look ahead to the vision and see the picture of Jesus coming with his angels and saying, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. 
And then you'll understand why we're on this path together of self-denial, of suffering, and maybe even death. It's the key to life itself. Amen.